reading today is from Acts 8, verses 26 to 40. Then an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Get up and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a wilderness road. So he got up and went. Now there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of the Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, in charge of her entire treasury. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning home, seated in his chariot. He was reading the prophet Isaiah. Then the spirit said to Philip, go over to this chariot and join it. So Philip ran up to it and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah. He asked, do you understand what you're reading? He replied, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to get in and sit beside him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb silent before its shearer, so he does not open his mouth. In his humiliation justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation, for his life is taken away from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, about whom may I ask does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? Then Philip began to speak, and starting with this scripture, he proclaimed to him the good news about Jesus. As they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. What is to prevent me from being baptized? He commanded the chariot to stop, and both of them, Philip and the eunuch, went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. The eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and he was passing through the region. He proclaimed the good news to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. And together we pray, Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Tapa tapa tu ki te rāngi whakai ai kauana Hei runga te kōti pū, hei raru te kōti hono Ki kona koutou mihi mai ai, kā mau te hono Whiti tū a, whiti aru rāni e te rangi Te rangi e tū nei, te papo e takoto nei Tūruki, tūruki, pāneke, pāneke Hō mai te toki, haumi e, hui e, tāi ki e he hōnu re he kuroria ki te atua, he mau ngā rongo ki te whenua, he whakāru pai ki ngā tāngata katoa. E te hunga mate, e tū mai nei o tātou, pakihiwi haere, haere, haere atu rā. E ai ki te kōrero o mātou, tūpuna Māori, āpiti honu tātai honu, te hunga mate ki te hunga mate, te hunga ora ki te hunga ora. Nō reira, e te hunga ora tēnā koutou. Mōrena, mōrena. Ko ai a hau, e te taho tōku māma, ko e ngā rangi te iwi. I te taho tōku pāpa, ko hiku rangi me mūta tau ngā maunga, ko taiki rauki tau mārere me ramarama ngā awa, ko ngā tokima te whaurua te waka, ko ngā puhi me ngāti hine oku iwi, ko ngāti te taroa te hapū, ko mūta tau te marae. Ko Sam Hinari tōku ingoa, nō reira tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou katoa. Mūrena, everybody. How are you? It's always so embarrassing hearing my voice on that video that goes before. That's actually the first time I think I watched it through to the end. I just sit there like this the whole time. Um, so kia ora, my name is Sam Hinari. Uh, on the side of my mother, I am from the UK, was born in England, uh, close to a place called Brighton. Uh, on the side of my father, I am from Ngāti Hine, 
and Ngāpuhi and Te Taitokirau. Uh, my mountains are Hikurangi and Mutatau. Uh, the river that I belong to is Te Taumarere Tapu. Uh, and the waka that brought my tūpuna to this land was Ngātoki Matafaurua. Um, and it's a pleasure to be here with you guys. My beautiful wife is there. My son just came in. It looks like he needs a nappy change, so they're off doing that. Um, so me and Stacey, we met in 2008 uh, when we were walking home uh, from the shops. It's a very embarrassing story. I was 16 at the time. I'm not going to tell the story because it's too embarrassing for, for, for me to tell you from up here. Uh, we got married later in 2012. Um, and we've always had a heart to go overseas, to go and work amongst different communities and different cultures. And we had that opportunity to do that in 2014. Uh, we went over to Cambodia and worked over there. Uh, my wife Stacy is a nurse, so she was doing a lot of nursing work in Cambodia, working with some uh, non-government organisations, helping out there. Um, and we also did some other work, we're doing some slum ministry, doing some red light district ministry over in Phnom Penh. The other work we did when we were there is we actually worked with a local church in Phnom Penh as well, trying to empower leaders uh, and, and trying to just, just try and serve them and help where we could there. Now, it was one of those times uh, in our lives which we look back on it, and it was one of those times where for that, the, the time we were in Phnom Penh, we just felt like we were surviving the whole time. It wasn't like, we didn't feel like we were thriving at all. We felt like it was a lot of hard work for us over there. But looking back on it, it's one of those times that we can trace back and see where God really spoke some amazing things into our lives, and we really grew from that time. So after our time in Cambodia, we actually had the, the honour to go back to the UK for a little while, for six weeks before we came back to New Zealand. Um, and it was a really amazing time for us just to sit and reflect on and, and what God had been doing. Now, I was reading this, uh, reading this book at the time uh, as a means for, to help me reflect a book about leadership. I know it sounds really boring as a way to reflect reading books about leadership and eldership and things, but it was all kind of about how we can do eldership in overseas kind of spaces and uh, across through different cultures. And I remember uh, hearing this, reading this story in this book, and the story goes like this. It was about a man, uh, a preacher called Dave Devonish, and he was preaching in this particular country, and uh, so he's kind of going through his thing and, and at the front, doing his talk. Then as he was getting towards the back end of his talk, these two big busloads of people uh, came and arrived outside of the church. And there was a bit of a, a stir and a commotion amongst the, the church and what's going on. Then these two busloads of people came in and sat down right at the front of the church. And yeah, this is like, this is like a preacher's dream, right? There's all these people have just turned up. So what does he do? He just obviously just starts going for the gospel. Man, maybe this is going to be a revival in this nation. Maybe this is going to be uh, the work that God is beginning to move amongst these people. And so while he, he's kind of going for it, going for the gospel, but he realizes that no one's actually listening to him. <laughs> they're, they're chatting amongst themselves, and he's sitting there going, What's, this isn't what revival's supposed to look like. This is supposed to be Holy Spirit coming down. Anyway, gets his way to the end. No one responds to his gospel message at the end. But what happens is this group floods the stage. They come running forward, and they're all holding water, water bottles <laughs> full of water and shouting at him in their own language. Now, this is an Englishman who doesn't know what's going on at the moment, working through a translator the whole time. So this translator comes up to him, and he goes, oh, what they want you to do is they want you to pray for their water bottles and bless their water bottles so that they can hang them above their door and so every time they walk backwards and forwards through their front door, they're going to uh, kind of have good luck and, and blessing on them. And so <laughs> regardless of what you think about that story, regardless of where you theologically stand on water bottles being hung above the door, 
my initial reaction to hearing the stories was to go, of course they'd think like that, that's what that culture would be like, in a real like negative sense. And I remember, I, it was one of those times where I thought it, and I don't know if you've had these experiences where you just feel God just slap you. And I just remember sitting there going, oh, I thought I'd done the cross-cultural thing. I thought I, I thought I worked well in these spaces. I still have these kind of racial prejudices that go on in my head when I think about particular people groups. And I was so stunned with the way I thought um, that, to be honest, that was really the big takeaway from that book for me. And so after our time in the UK, we came back to Aotearoa, back to our church where we used to live in Wellington. And there's this beautiful Nigerian whānau in our church, amazing, amazing whānau who had to put up with so much rubbish from, from other people in the church. I remember coming up to them and saying, um, you know, you guys, you guys don't really feel racial prejudice towards you in, in our church, do you? Thinking, it's not our church. <laughs> and I remember this man, he grabs me by the shoulders and he says, Sam, thank God someone has realized. Thank God that, that people are now being aware of what we're facing on a day-to-day basis. And, you know, I thought maybe there'll be one, one little minor thing, but it wasn't one minor thing. And as they sat me down and I went, I, this wasn't like a conversation we had in the moment. This was a conversation over a series of dinner times where they'd be like, actually, this is, people treat us like this. People won't come up to us and talk to us. People won't hug us. And all of this kind of stuff. Like, within the church, I was so, so stunned by this at that time. And really heartbroken, because, you know, they have this beautiful daughter as well, and they began to share these stories about how their daughter was treated. Um, Yeah, a very eye-opening time for us. However, we know that God's heart is for a multicultural church. We know that God's heart is for people, no matter what culture, no matter what nationality, no matter what ethnicity they are, can come and worship him. We see this played out in Revelation 7, which says, After this I looked, and there before me, was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. What a beautiful vision for the church. People from every tribe and nation singing in their own language, Salvation be to God. And we're kind of in the season now where we're at Pentecost. This, uh, this series of talks is about Acts. And don't you find it really interesting that when the Holy Spirit comes in Acts, the first thing the Spirit does is he falls on people and they begin to speak in different languages. That the primary work of the Holy Spirit is to witness about who Jesus is, but he does it in other languages. It's the most beautiful thing. Now, for some reason in my head, I don't know why, this could just be me being strange, but I always thought it would make more sense for them to, um, to, to for, the, for the people to understand the one language. And of course, that language would be English, right? They'd all understand English. <laughs> but that's not how it works, because God loves language. You see, language isn't just a means of communication, unlike what Mike Hosking thinks it is. Language is actually a way that we can get a, a window into how a culture expresses itself. So last time I talked, we, we opened up the word tūranga waiwai, like a standing place, a place where we're empowered, uh, a place where we're connected, a beautiful, beautiful word. But other cultures have these amazing things in their own languages, these words that are not really able to be translated, you know, like house, fari, one word translation, but they're concepts that we have to explore. And there's this one really beautiful language 
that talks about love. You see, in, in English, when we talk about love, we talk about falling in love. Oh, I fell in love. Oh, what happened to you? I was just walking down the street. I saw this guy. I fell in love. Which is great, a lovely poetic way of talking about it. But then it's also really easy to fall out of love as well, right? Oh, I, I fell out of love. And then what happens there? Oh, I just stopped loving that person. We hear about it all the time, right? I just stopped loving that person. But the way this other culture, I, f- I forget which na- nation this is that uses this language, but they talk about love as painting a picture. It's this beautiful expression that they paint the picture of love. And yeah, things get hard, but what happens when, when this is coming from someone who's not an artist, by the way, but I imagine it's like when painting a picture and you get to something that's tricky or hard to approach, you might stop and go, hmm, how am I going to approach this again? Take a moment and then go back into it. And then keep working and keep working on that love and that relationship that you have with that person. You see, language is so expressive and we add so much more to our understanding of God and who he is and what his nature is like when we begin to have other voices in that conversation. However, so often our own ethnocentrism or racial prejudice can get in the way. This word ethnocentric, it's a a word that cultural anthropologists throw around all the time, but it's a a word used to describe when you judge another culture and compare them to your own culture and you see them as as less, uh, the way they do things, it's not as good as the way you do things. And this is something that cultural anthropologists argue that we all do, that we all have ethnocentric practices in our own life. I mean, we kind of have those practices anyway, even though when it's not about cross-cultural things, right? So the way I do Christmas, oh, you guys... The way, Christmas in our house is like a, it's madness in the morning. We're just up, tearing open the presents, get into it, all the presents are done. But other people might look at us and go, well, that's a weird way of doing Christmas. I know that some of my friends and, and, and things, they'd be like, we might open a few presents now and then wait a bit and then do it and then get into it a bit later. And, it, and they might look at us and be like, oh, they're a bit, I don't know, a bit tribal the way they do that. <laughs> and I use it as a, as a funny joke. But the point is that we do look at other cultures and see the ways that they do things is different from our own and we can make judgments about it. And it gets in the way of this beautiful multicultural church. Which brings us to our passage in Acts 8, where the Holy Spirit, as I said before, has been pulled out in Acts 2 and in multiple languages, and we see this as an amazing pouring out of the Spirit. But then it continues as this man, Philip, is uh, is told by the Holy Spirit to go and, and talk to this man on the chariot. Now, this man, he's an Ethiopian eunuch. Now... Being a eunuch was not a great thing, as you can imagine today, it probably wouldn't be great either. But there were a lot of social stigma that were tied with, with what it was to be a eunuch in that day. They were very, very looked down upon by society. They were seen neither as male nor as female. They were kind of viewed as this in-between, almost not human, almost in a way, almost alien-like. They were seen as very effeminate, especially by those who had experienced or who had been castrated before they'd hit puberty. And they weren't actually allowed to eat in the temple either, or to be a part of the, the proceedings that were going on in the temple. In some places, this is how bad it was, it was such, seen as such a bad omen to see a eunuch that if you were doing your thing during your day and you met one, then people would often go right back to the beginning of their day, retrace all their steps and start their day again as a way to try and get rid of the bad luck or the bad whatever it was that they, that they thought was going to happen through meeting a eunuch. So this was what this man would experience on a daily basis. However, the Holy Spirit loves the marginalized, and God loves the marginalized. 
and he sends Philip. And it's so interesting that the verse that this man is pondering, he was led, like, from Isaiah, he was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants, for his life was taken from the earth? See, where this man was on his day-to-day way, he lived his life through the humiliation, that is where the Holy Spirit met him, in the, in the things that he was going through, that he was able to identify his own humiliation with the humiliation that Jesus went through on the cross for us. That is the Holy Spirit. That is the God who loves multiculturalism and loves the marginalized. So what does this mean for us? Who are the marginalized in Aotearoa? Would I would argue that Māori are heavily marginalised in this country. I've got a few statistics for you. 16.5% of the population of Aotearoa identify as Māori. However, 58% of the male prison population is Māori. Just let that statistic just sit there for a minute. 16.5% of the nation identifies as Māori, yet 58% of the prison population, male prison population, are Māori. 51% of the female prison population are Māori. Māori are three times more likely to have gambling addiction, two times more likely to have heart disease, 1.5 to two times more likely to have a stroke, and they're more likely to die of cancer. One in five Māori children will grow up in poverty. This is a heavily marginalised community. And I would argue although it's a lot more complicated than me just standing up and saying it in one sentence, but I argue that largely this has been a flow-on effect from colonisation, what's happened, and seeing how that continues to impact people today. Before the arrival of, of Pākehā, Māori had 100% of the whenua of Aotearoa. Now, I don't like saying it like that either, because it wasn't thought of that they owned the land. Like Māori, we didn't own the land, but we belonged to the land. So when I share my pipihai with you, that this is the mountain that I belong to, this is the river that I belong to. So it's a different way of thinking. I just want to make that clear as well when we continue. In 1860, though, this is 20 years after Te Tiriti or Waitangi, suddenly the land position dropped to 80%. Māori now had 80% land position. 1890, it dropped to 40%. 1910, it dropped to 27%. 1939, to 9%. And by the year 2000, uh, Māori land position was 4% of this land. Now, this is a big thing, because what does this mean? Well, the Māori word for land is whenua. We all know the word whenua. But the word whenua has another meaning as well, and it actually means uh, it's the umbilical cord, umbilical cord for the baby. Now, this talks about the tie that Māori have to the land, the sustenance that is gained from the land. Now, it's not just, it's not just land as, as we can often see it, where we have our own little house and our picket fence, and it's all closed off. But this talks about spiritual and cultural connection, so that when the land was lost, it also resulted in culture loss as well for many. So now for many of our people, the, they do not speak te reo Māori, they have no connection to their marae, and my personal view on it is that this is a reason for many of these negative statistics that we see uh, amongst Māori and Aotearoa. And how has the church treated Māori? It's not great when, when we look back through the past. It's not been the greatest way. Um, early on, we saw amazing things. When the gospel was welcomed into this land, when Samuel Marsden and Ruatara preached the gospel in 1814, uh, amazing sermon in Uihi Bay, 
And the response from Ngāpuhi at the time was, ka nuku nuku, ka niki niki, which means we make room for this gospel to be placed amongst us. They used a, a metaphor to the pipifarodua bird, which is the, a manu that makes, lays its eggs in other nests. So they were saying, come and lay the egg of the gospel amongst us. And it was exciting, but the gospel that got laid was not, or I would argue, the gospel of the Bible. It was the gospel of uh, England at the time. Uh, where lots of things were put in the way, such as making people learn how to speak Latin before they could become priests, and all these kind of obstacles were put in the way. Also, I would argue that indigenous cultures, if we, if we move to today, many indigenous cultures have been forgotten about. When we think of places like Aotearoa, Australia, North America, many of our indigenous cultures have been forgotten because we're, many of us get excited, I, I'm, this is myself as well, get excited about doing cross-cultural mission. Yes, Lord, you say, ask and we'll see the nations be given to us, that the nations will, will turn to you, that every tribe and tongue will bow and every tongue will confess. You know, all of these things, and we go, right, we're going to go to the nations. Right, where's the nations? We're not here. We're going to go, like I did, to Cambodia. We're going to go to another nation. And what are we going to do? To get ourselves ready for that, uh, I'm going to learn about the culture. I'm going to learn the language. I'm going to do these things, and then I'm going to go, because that's doing the mission, the, the cultural mission. Whereas we forget about our own people in our own land. We forget to learn te reo Māori. We forget to learn the Aboriginal languages of Australia. We forget to learn the indigenous languages of North America. And the indigenous cultures are forgotten about. The other thing that's happened often in this nation especially is that we've demonised te ao Māori. We've, we've demonised a Māori perspective. Now, I remember there was this, this really beautiful website that I used to look at, and it had uh, it was, it was a, a prayer website. I can't remember what the website's called. But they used to have a prayer for every nation. I used to click on it, uh, and it would do this really cool like two, three-minute video, and it would say, um, this is some of the prayer points. This is what the nation's going through at the moment. How, this is how you can pray. A really great uh, resource for us as, as the church to be able to link into. And I remember looking, I was like, this, again, this is probably not a great way of thinking, but I thought, right, I'm going to watch the Australian one because they treat Aboriginals way worse than we treat Māori in this country. So I went and looked at it, and their video was beautiful. It was so good about all that, how they uplift Indigenous people, and that, that's the goal for the church. Can we pray for the Indigenous? I was like, oh, wow. Well, New Zealand's going to be really good then. And so I went and clicked on the New Zealand one, and it was terrible. It had a, a video of a pōhiri, of a welcoming ceremony, and the, the captions over the top were, uh, we pray against any uh, worship of foreign gods in our land, and, and, and demon worship in, in New Zealand. And I was, just like, I was just heartbroken. Because this is what we've done so many times before in our past, is we've demonised people for being Māori, and instead of seeing them be who God has called them to be. In 1 Corinthians 12, we get this beautiful picture of what the body of Christ is to look like. Now, it's that verse, you know, we've got the hand and we've got the feet and we've got the eye and the ear and all these kind of different jobs that the body has. And it's a really beautiful, uh, really beautiful description. And it's talking in the sense of uh, some people uh, uh, have the gifts of prophecy and some people have the gifts of teaching and all these spiritual gifts. And together, we can be this beautiful body. But the way it starts off is it actually says, just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one, one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles. So it's saying that, yes, this is how it works for us if we've got, with the teaching gifts, with the prophetic gifts, with these different gifts, but it is just like it is with Jews and Gentiles, with different cultures. That as different cultures, we're not meant to look the same, 
But each of us have these different functions for us, and when we come together, we are one body. And it's this beautiful picture, and it goes on and it says, Now, uh, even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Now, if the foot should say, Because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being a part of the body. And if the ear should say, Because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty. While our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together, giving great honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. And I feel for so long that the body of Christ has been led by one particular part of the body. That as the Western church, we've so often... Uh, tried to lead the way. Maybe we were the hand trying to drag the rest of the body this particular way. Japanese theologian Kosuke Koyama, he says, the cultural values of Asia and the Pacific have not been appreciated. They were in a package decided to be against the values for which Jesus Christ stood, though in most cases such judgment has been given in terms of the values found in the Western lifestyle for which Jesus Christ does not necessarily stand. That which was unfamiliar to the church was condemned as anti-Christian. Now, it is my heart that us as a church whānau will be a place where people from every tribe and culture and tongue can come and feel at home amongst us. And that people who are Māori can come amongst us as a whānau and they'll feel more Māori because they'll be able to express themselves here in a Māori way. That people who are Zimbabwean, Cambodian, Zambian, wherever, will be able to be amongst us as a whānau and will feel that they can express themselves in a way that is truly them. That they will, this will be a place in Aotearoa where they will feel more themselves than they are in other places. That we'll be able to see expressions of worship amongst us that we've not seen before as we see this amazing, beautiful uh, body of Christ begin to function. This is my heart. And I am so sure that we are coming to a time now in, in Aotearoa that we're, we're in, in 1 Corinthians where it says, but God has put the body together, giving great honor to the parts that lacked it. I, I pray that we are coming to a time where God will continue to give great honor to the body parts that have lacked it for so long. And I pray that they will be able to find that honor amongst us as a church whānau in St. Augustine's. Remember, if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. We have suffered for so long because we haven't allowed other people to come amongst us and express themselves in their, using their own cultural identity. I remember being in a worship time, one time where the leader was singing a song. It was that um, He Loves Us, uh, John Mark McMillan. He loves us, oh, how he loves us. And anyway, we're getting, sorry about that. <laughs> anyway, we're getting towards the end of the worship time. And the worship leader, in an attempt to try and do something multicultural, switched it to Te Reo Māori and, and began to sing that verse out in Te Reo Māori. And uh, then suddenly it was like, yep, yeah, right, we're going to finish there. Worship leader begins to turn around to put the guitar away. But at that moment, we had someone from 
uh, uh, Zimbabwe sing it out in their own tongue. We had a Cambodian in, in the congregation sing it out in their own tongue. And all of a sudden, we got this small glimpse of what it was to look like in Revelation 7 with all tribes and tongues around the throne singing. And man, did it blow up in the meeting, something chronic, as the Holy Spirit came in and began to minister and to meet with us. So let me finish with this. We're going to go into a time of communion now, of, of the Eucharist now, and some worship. But as we begin to do these things, can I just lay a challenge to you guys, to us all, to myself as well. When we come to God, let us deal with our own ethnocentric tendencies. Let us deal with our own racial prejudices as we come to him. Are there things getting in the way that are stopping our brothers and sisters being able to express who they truly are in Christ? Be open to that and be ready for it to hurt when God talks to you as well. Because if it doesn't hurt, then it's probably not, not, not happening, not true. The second is we're going to pray that God will give us as a church community a heart for the marginalized, a heart focusing outwards. I truly believe that a, the, the sign of a church that has the Holy Spirit dwelling in it is a church that is facing outwards all the time, facing towards the marginalized, facing towards different people groups. And we cry for that amongst us. Be open to that. And I pray that God will ready us to become a place of belonging for people from any nation. We pray for that. God, get us ready for that. We pray, let the nations be amongst us, but let them not conform to how we look. Father, we want to give this to you now, Jesus. We pray, Holy Spirit, come amongst us as a community. We say you are so good, Holy Spirit. We thank you that when we were in our lowest, you came and you saved us. We praise you for that, Jesus. But we praise you that it was not just us, but you made a way for the nations to come to you, for people to come and express themselves in their own cultural ways that feel natural to them. We praise you for that, Jesus. We cry for St. Augustine's, Lord. Please make us a whānau. Make us this whare a place where people can turn to you and express who they are in you. We cry for that. Do a work amongst us. Come and talk to us now as we, as we spend time meeting with you in the Eucharist. Come and talk to us and, and say things that might hurt. We're ready for that. We're ready for that because we are so ready to sacrifice things in order for this to be a place where your gospel is so present, where your Holy Spirit dwells. We pray for this, Jesus. Amen. Amen.